Happy hump day. Uh, this is your host, Chris Long. This is the Green Light Pod. And I got a fun show today. The main event, I'll just get it out of the way, is going to be John Weinbach. Uh, he is one of the producers, along with uh, Mike Tolan, uh, on The Last Dance. They did a magnificent job stating the obvious. And they did a great job under a time crunch. They finished uh, ahead of schedule and then like warp speed on top of that to get it out remotely. My producers uh, are sitting on the other end of this thing, listening to me do a pod. They're probably nodding in agreement that doing a pod remotely is really fucking hard. Doing the last dance remotely is insanity. And uh, I, I, I can't wait to tell him how appreciative I am of, uh, of what they did, because this transcended just something on TV. I mean, it really did. Uh, we will always remember this time, and we will always remember the Last Dance. Uh, there's a lot I want to ask him about. We'll get to that in a little bit. By the way, he's been nominated for a couple sports Emmys. He's, uh, he's done a couple 30 for 30s. He also did, um, and this one's a little personal to me because it's the Raiders and my pops era, but straight out of LA. So John did a great job. So uh, really honored that he would uh, come on the pod. And uh, we'll get to that in a bit. Couple housekeeping uh, items here. Uh, yesterday happened to be. And I didn't know this until I saw it on Twitter. One year for me outside of the game of football. Uh, one year retired. Although I was mentally outside of the game of football before, before I retired. Uh, that was the day I announced it. So sort of a significant day for me. And on that same day, coincidentally, and I put these two things together today, we uh, exceeded the 1 million download uh, mark on this pod, which is pretty awesome. And uh, that's more of a thank you than it is a congratulations to myself because y'all are the ones listening, downloading. So I appreciate you. If you're, if you're listening and you like what you're hearing, uh, subscribe or uh, tell a friend. Share the pod. You know, like maybe for my one year out of football present, you can pass the pod on to somebody that you think uh, might like it. And if you don't think anybody would like it, I, I'm wondering why you're listening. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I might start celebrating, um, what is it, May 18th was, was uh, as I record this Tuesday night, was, uh, was, was my first day as a retired normal human being. And, uh, and it's pretty cool. It's been an awesome year. I'm not a big birthday guy, as I've ranted on before. I think that when you're born it's uh, undoubtedly the thing that takes the least effort in your entire lifetime. I mean, it takes zero effort, yet we celebrate it, post about it, and pat ourselves on the back about it when we should just be calling our mothers. I'm going to celebrate my first day out of football like it's my birthday, starting next year. I'm not going to do a late party this weekend. Although, listen, my, I didn't even mention it to my wife yet, my lovely wife, Meg. I might, I might with any luck, walk downstairs after I... Uh, finish this pod and bring it up and say that I, I owe myself a night of drinking this weekend on a Zoom call with my friends. Maybe I will uh, celebrate. But I got to say, you know, when I retired from football, or when I considered retiring from football, there was a lot of fear there. There was a lot of anxiety um, late in my career. Throughout my career, I often feared what, you know, stepping off that ledge would be like. You hear horror stories 
you hear um, anecdotes that just make you feel like you have this really dark destiny. And uh, maybe that's down the line for me. I don't know. Uh, but I got to say, so far, so good. Been one of the best years of my life, save for my childhood. I mean, this is, uh, this is the life. I got two healthy kids. Um, I love them very much. I got a wonderful wife, uh, my lovely wife, Meg. And uh, I got a job that excites me. I mean, learning new things. Uh, I'm closer to a whole person than I was my entire career, uh, being able to just follow leads that interest me and talk to more people and, and kind of widen my, broaden my horizons um, a little bit more, widen my scope of, of knowledge. And uh, I got a long way to go, a lot to learn, but you guys have helped me a lot along that way. Pushing me when I wake up in the morning and I get ready to do a pod, I am thinking about the fear of failure, just like when I played. Um, you know, I was on busing with the boys last week with uh, Will and Taylor. Uh, shout out to those guys. And they asked me jokingly, are we competing, you know, our pods? And I really do believe this. I don't track where we are from a ranking standpoint, like where we are on the Apple page or any of that shit. Like, I have no idea. I literally just try to do the best I can and try to be myself because I would hate to be misrepresented and climb the ranks. Like, so competition is not a thing. You know, competition would only be a thing is if I wasn't getting the job done and I molded what I was doing or saying to catch up to whoever it was I was competing with. This isn't a win or lose thing like football where there's one outcome where it's a, you have to, you have to score more points than the other team. Like that's the only uh, significant marker of, of, uh, of success for me. It's enjoying my job, being pushed mentally and delivering a product that people enjoy. So thank you for the downloads. Thank you for uh, listening. And thank you for telling a friend uh, one year out of football, million downloads. Coincidence. I think not. Thank y'all. All right, so hard right turn here. Um, naturally, we're gonna we're gonna jump from existential crisis surrounding the fear of retirement uh, and my deepest gratitude to our listenership to sex dolls. I didn't I didn't bring it up. It just it it was on my timeline today by way of Scott Van Pelt by way, by way of Midnight Sports Center, one of the most popular sports shows in uh, the country, and that's how much we've run out of shit to talk about. Although I think we talk about this at any given point during the calendar year under normal circumstance. FC Seoul, this is a major soccer club from all I know, from everything I know. Um, not the Philadelphia Seoul, not John Bon Jovi here. Um, FC Seoul, Seoul, South Korea, filled their stadium with um, sex dolls, or as they called it, uh, premium mannequins. Okay, FC Seoul insisted they were premium mannequins rather than sex dolls, but did admit they came from a supplier that produces sex toys. That's one of those things. Okay. First off, we know why they're doing it. They're trying to create an, a, an atmosphere, but there's a thin line between an atmosphere and an ambiance. And for some guys, that's an ambiance. For some dudes, they just walked into an orgy. <laughs> it's like, these dolls are disgusting, okay? I'm not going to kink shame. I'm, I'm certainly not going to kink shame um, during a pandemic. Times are tough. I'm not going to blame a soccer club for busting these things in and filling their stadium with them. I mean, to create a little bit of an atmosphere or the uh, illusion of an atmosphere. It's all a game. Just like what they're intended to do. It's all make-believe. It's the, the, fans, the fans in the stands. It's the same thing. What are we mad about? I don't think anybody's mad about it. I think people are legitimately amused, but FC Soul has apologized. And as I said, I'm not going to kink shame. I get it. You're trying to get creative. 
It's going to take ingenuity to pull out of this thing. No pun intended. Um, it's, uh, it's bizarre though. It's pretty fucking bizarre that you didn't quite realize that they were, that this was going to happen when you did it. Um, but you did it. And I'm intrigued with this topic. I always have been. And by intrigued, I don't mean like I'm going to pop on Amazon or wherever you buy these bad boys and order a few. I, I'm intrigued at the phenomenon that people are turning to sex dolls. Like, what's the demo here? And um, where do we draw the line? Again, not kink shaming. I do draw the line, however, at... Uh, at Sex Robots, I talked about that at length in a pod in the fall. Uh, you can check that out in a shared tweet yesterday. I really ranted for a bit on those sex robots. I think that's where we're getting into really scary territory, especially for the guys, because, you know, you're going to get like some Jean-Claude Van Damme looking sex robot. and He's just going to monopolize your entire sex life at home uh, because he can do everything you can do and more. And if he's the Jean-Claude Van Damme version, he knows karate and can protect the household and satisfy your wife like it's just a slippery slope you're going down there it's it's uh it's a lonely road to inadequacy for everybody involved and uh we don't need to go down the sex robot uh westworld type i mean like westworld that that would be kind of cool but but sex robots uh at least in the stages that i've seen i'm not a fan of and you know i'm i'm okay with people and their sex dolls uh if that's what you're into uh, just I wouldn't suggest like getting used sex dolls, like play it against sports type sex dolls off the table. I also think that there's some things in life you don't you don't seek discounts for. And those would be one of them. W whatever site you're getting on to get your sex dolls, uh, sort that by price. And the one with more dollar signs at the top, the four dollar sign uh, sort option. Click that bad boy. It's like tattoos. I got people that are like, I don't go to that tattoo artist. He's too expensive. Okay, well, go get a discount tattoo that's going to be on your body for the rest of your life, the rest of your life. So, yeah, that's where I draw the line in the sand. I draw it at uh, sex robots. I'm not kink shaming uh, FC Salt. Thanks for that gem, Scott Van Pelt, curator of really good, hard-hitting sports stuff. So now out of sex robots, we, uh, we go to a, a very accomplished producer. And he has been one of the main guys behind what, what's been gracing our television screen the past almost two months. So keep me alive, man. John Weinbach. Let's get him on the line. So I've said this a number of times uh, on Greenlight Pod. This is the best guest I've ever, uh, I've ever had. Uh, and due to the circumstances for just saving sports fans' sanity and our sense of hope, I appreciate John Weinbach for coming on, one of the producers on The Last Dance. Uh, certainly a great ride. We're sad it's over. John, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming on. I was saying like the other night as I finished watching, I, I was interacting with some fans on Twitter of the show, obviously, uh, because who isn't? But I, uh, I wondered how many like post-Super Bowl hangover sadnesses is this? Is this like half a post-Super Bowl hangover when the last dance ends for sports fans? I guess for you, it's unique. You don't like you've been so immersed in it's hard for you to watch it like a normal fan. But for us, it's at least a half Super Bowl for me. Well, you know, it's funny because, you know, I saw all the episodes in various stages, but I will tell you, except for episodes nine and 10, because we were so pressed for time that we, we edited those. I mean, some of your listeners may not know, like, you know, you edit in low resolution so that you have all this media and you don't see the actual final version unless, you know, Jason saw it, our director and the team in New York. 
but I actually didn't get a chance to see the final, final versions of the show mixed and colored and with all that 1998 footage really looking great. So it was right. kind of cool, you know, seeing it that way. And obviously, as a, even if you're inside, you don't know what's going to resonate with people and you don't know like what I think none of us, I mean, I don't think any of us expected this kind of reception. But really, you know, what you could never predict is what are the things that are going to make it go viral? Like the John Wozniak thing or the lower third that said, you the know. Barack the Barack thing, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, it became this thing. Like before seven and eight, I, I texted with, you know, Jason and Jake Rogal, you know, fantastic producer, and, and Matt Maxson, um, great part of the team. I was like, what do we think it is? Like, what, what, what's the leader in the clubhouse for what's going to become the viral moment for seven and eight? Is it going to be, you know, Matt Michael talking trash about Gary Payton? Is it, mm-hmm. you know, the conspiracy theories? Like, what's going to be the thing? Y'all should have gambled on that. That was very <laughs> fitting. And, and, uh, and honestly, I was thinking that one of my questions was, you know, how on point or was anybody on the team most on point about what was going to go viral? Because there was obviously woes in the act. There were a lot of moments. There were cameos that just hit hit it, you know, struck gold. But the Pacers lady from the other night, like, oh, you know, by the way, you know, the story. Apparently, that's Luke Hornet's mom. That's what I heard. Yeah. That's what I heard. And then now, I heard. I don't it's know not. if that's true. I, I heard that. I heard, and then I heard it's not, and then like I heard she got on like the fan yesterday and and was ready to explain what was going down. <laughs> and she's like, "Yo, me and me and MJ, we 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 were cool. He just look and nod and like shake his head, but like me and Rodman, we were battling." And I'm the, like, "Yeah, this is this lady's day in the sun." So she didn't effectively know. Imagine being that famous and not knowing you're going to be that famous or internet famous for 22, 23 years. Well, the best is I would love to find the kid. Uh, it's in the section when he's in minor league. I think the the, sh- the footage was shot in sh- in uh, Birmingham, but I actually don't know precisely. There's a little kid who's getting an autograph with Jordan, and he's on the street, and Jordan's mm-hmm. rubbing off, and the kid is all nervous. Yes, I love this. Like, who is that? You're talking kid about the now? Ferrari scene. Yes, yes. But yeah, no, th- that scene stood out to me. I watch everything, like, and I'm looking for the little things. I mean, and I, it's like ADD, so I can't focus on the. But I'm thinking to myself, as that's happening, who the fuck honks at Michael Jordan? <laughs> like, did y'all mix in that honk sound, or was that somebody no! honking at him? And tra- who does that? Michael Jordan's in Birmingham. You wait. You sit there at the light and wait for him to sign the autograph, and then you go on your way. There's so many priceless little moments, um, you know, along the way. You, just little things in the footage. I mean, look, I'm biased. I love all the episodes, but like, there's little archival moments, and just to, I have to give a, a nod to Nina Kristich, who's the archival producer. She. She just did a little project called on the called OJ, and then she, uh-huh. you know, we were lucky enough to to get her on this project. She's the best in the business. And the moment I think it's an episode, I don't actually know if I remember if it's episode one or two. We have Bob Costas current day talking about the Bulls and how they were kind of a mediocre franchise in the '70s and the '80s, and then we cut to Bob Costas. WGN Chicago with that hair the hair it's so great I remember it I had it I had it written down we talked about it on my pod um you know it's all the little things like that it's it's a it's a great point because you know we're all we're all on the edge of our seats focused on the main character but there were so many great characters not just you know it's almost like for somebody who, who was born when I was born and anybody who was a sports fan in the 90s you knew the players on the court so seeing a Ron Harper in an interview seeing you know, even even John Stockton, which I know you guys shot at the height of, of COVID in Spokane, like, 
or any of these guys showing more personality than they were given an opportunity to have in the 90s was mm-hmm. it, it was it was truly remarkable it was it was like seeing something adapted to a big screen yeah i mean the you know you are literally exactly the target audience i mean i would say people from you know 20 to 35 i mean i'm 44 i grew up you know in the 80s in la massive laker fan dodgers raiders uh ucla but you know i grew up watching all of this and so i had an appreciation for it. i was already in college you know when the the second three-peat happened but you know i think you know sort of gets to the the essence of how the project came together you know mike tolan who's who's my partner and, and my boss manly sports media we did a big lookbook uh for the for the project um and this goes you know back to 2016 that's how long this has been in gestation um but w- as sort of the entry point to the the deck Mike wrote kind of an open letter to Michael. Yeah. And it, the essence of it was, you know, every year we have college interns and we have young people who work at our company and we have a Monday morning meeting every week and we talk about things. And oftentimes it's like talking about stuff that happened in the 90s and like the intern's eyes glaze over. And with Jordan, they all know him because they all have their sh- his shoes or they, they know him as the brand, but they never saw him play. Yeah. And it's just like, it's time. I think, I think you made a great point, though. And this was my main takeaway in the beginning about the entire purpose of this thing. I mean, not only is it going to be inadvertently um, and in a good way, synonymous, the only positive thing we're, gonna, we're probably going to associate with this terrible time, people will remember this time forever, one way or another. They'll always remember this doc. And I know that's not how you drew it up, but it did give everybody a lot of comfort and community that everybody can get online at the same time and watch the same thing. Like, in, in, in an era where none of us can spend time together, we essentially are, as we would with sports all the time. But also, what you mentioned, I'm the target demo, but there's really three functionalities to watching this, in my opinion. You've got people who are younger, and for them, it's like education. And also, unfortunately, they only consume things through a first-take type of comparative lens. But this is the first time they really saw this. Now, there's people like me who interestingly for me watching the second repeat was this rush of nostalgia. Now the first one, I'm five, six, seven years old. You can't expect me to be watching sports like that. It was almost educational. And then for you, for an older person who's 10, 10 years older than me, um, it's a rush of nostalgia all the way through. And it's like, I was there, which is really cool. You can hit three mm-hmm. audiences and they all have different functionality. Well, it's incredible um, with time the characters, the, the, the significance of them. I mean, they, they were great stories even then, but you think about a Steve Kerr, you know, mm-hmm. a Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson went on and won five more championships, you yes. know, and the significance of, of that team and that time, you know, um, I'm old enough to remember like a pre-internet era. And so Jordan sort of straddles this really interesting time. Like I told you, you know, I, I grew up in the 80s with Magic and Bird, And that's a, let's call it the rise of the cable TV era. Jordan straddles like this kind of analog cable TV, internet starting, but nothing like social media. So, but it was the first time that was kind of global. And, you know, look, the the rise of the international NBA Uh is entirely, you know, attributable to Jordan, the dream team. And I just think with time, these things, these guys have become only more interesting, only more significant. And, you know, you mentioned about like, you know, the nostalgia, I mean, there's so many very, I remember I watched the flu game or the pizza game, you know, with my uncle in Northern New Jersey in 1997, I was starting an internship and we just watched the game and, you know, neither 
He was a hardcore Knicks fan. He hated the Bulls. You know, and I was a Laker fan, and I and I hated the Jazz. Oh my God, did I hate the Jazz? But I kind of hated the Bulls too. But you had to appreciate Jordan, and it was so spectacular. And like I remember, by the way, I was randomly I was in Israel in 1995 watching that Magic team with you know Shaq and Penny and Horace Grant beat the Bulls in '95. It was like three in the morning. It was like. Jordan lost. Yeah. And I'm like walking in Jerusalem being like, what the, the earth has shifted it's, its it's axis. Is, and honestly, looking back at that, because that was a time in my life where I'm straddling, like being unaware in my sports fandom and just casual to like, I'm watching all the NBA games. I'm getting the bottle caps for the Gatorade bottles in the mid nineties. They were like, if you got bulls in six, you yeah. get <laughs> and that's right. It was the Sonic series. So like at each step there were like, you know, and, and I remember where I was. I remember I was in my buddy Philip Haas's basement when he hit that, that shot over uh, Brian Scott. And, you know, I remember where I was during the flu game. It's just you, you bring up a great point. And you also brought up a point about Phil. This ruins a question I had for you later. But I think if there's a better call Saul type spinoff on anybody, it's Phil. Oh. Slam dunk to me, at least. He's fascinating. You know, I, I had a chance as a reporter to do a piece on him. Um, he was this is probably 2009, 2010. And it, I, I can't remember the reason for it. There must've been maybe, oh, tell you what it was. It was, it was like maybe the 40th anniversary of the 1970 Knicks championship, kind of a random thing. But, you know, Phil was part of that great Knicks team from the late 60s and, and early 70s. But the first Knicks championship was 1970. And Phil was actually injured. And Red Holtzman, who was the coach of the Knicks, and he already knew Phil kind of had the mindset, even though he was kind of a maverick to be a coach, and he encouraged Phil to, you know, sort of be, be, get into coaching. And yeah. at that time, there were not like these huge staffs. There was one coach. And right. Phil became a kind of player coach assistant. And he said he would go, you know, at the time, he would go to NBC, which at the time had, or ABC had, had uh, I don't even know who had the NBA rights. And he would watch film. That was the only way to do it. Let me right. know you do. Yeah. And he was he's just a fascinating mix. You know, this guy grew up like hardcore religious you know, but in the middle of Native American country in North Dakota, had all these great mentors, and you know, goes to Puerto Rico. How great was that? Like I, that oh my God, dude! There were people calling for a spinoff right there. Uh, you know, him down in Puerto Rico. It's just otherworldly. The the footage of him playing ball, I think, caught a lot of people my age even off guard. I mean, I knew he played, but seeing. And by the way, Phil. Okay, so I every summer my entire childhood and now into adulthood. I go to Montana in uh, in in the summer for over a month, uh, Flathead Lake. So not far from where you guys interviewed Phil. So my antenna goes off because I, I've seen Phil at the Hoop Fest up there. It's a three-on-three tournament, a bunch of white kids and Native uh-huh. American kids from the Pacific Northwest descend on Polson, Montana, and Phil would roll up. Steve Kerr, I rode a jet ski with Steve Kerr. He's been on Flathead Lake. Frank Burkowski, if you remember Frank. Oh, come on. Frank Burkowski was on the Lakers in 87. Yeah, Many I know. Yeah. How do you think him and my dad met? They're like best buddies. I used to go to Lakers games because him and my dad were tight. And then I'd go to like Bucks games and Spurs games just because he bounced around a lot. But I remember watching the finals and Frank and Rodman getting into it. Yep. And I was hoping that that would show up. But Frank made the dock in one dunk against the Bucks. Jordan dunks over somebody. Frank's standing in the background like, what the fuck? <laughs> and I texted him, but... I guess starting from the beginning, 2016, okay, this was the key year. This was when you guys made some contact with Jordan, right? I yeah. mean, why 2016? I've read the, the, the long-form stuff. But, like, do you really think that Jordan is thinking, okay, I'm seeing a trend in long-form documentaries. <laughs> this is the time. I think- no, I think that's what 
in fairness, Curtis Polk and Esty Portnoy understood. I mean, they're extraordinarily sharp people. Got to be. And, um, you know, they're his longtime business partners, advisors, gatekeepers. Um, you know, we had known. I mean, I, I, I can't speak for Mike Tolan. I had heard about this trove of footage in 2001 um, when I was producing a show called The Life on ESPN. There was a guy we worked with who had shot a lot for the NBA, and he said, you know, there's this great stuff with Jordan, like from the 98 season, and you got, what's going to happen with that? I mean, this is in 2001. And so a guy we had worked with at Mandalay had actually met um, SD. Uh, Portnoy on, on a trip and sort of we, we, we sort of circled the wagon and said you know and this is a huge credit to Mike he was just like oh, let's take a shot so right. we went to Toronto for the all-star game coldest I've ever been as a human being and I <laughs> we, we we were sitting in the lobby Mike and I were sitting in the lobby at the hotel and sort of dreaming hoping may help them in this meeting with Curtis and Esty goes well Mike went away right. came back hey it it it, it went well so we got together, we got putting together this pitch book and, um, you know, I, I could tell you, oh, we, we, everything in the pitch book is in the series. No, but we, what's extraordinarily gratifying is that, you know, the, the, the vision of it was, Hey, let's use this spine of the 98 season and use it as a way to take departures into telling stories about Rodman yeah. and Phil and, and Kerr and the Pistons rivalry and the Air Jordan brand. So, you know, I think. Those factors that you mentioned, you know, the, the, the market opportunity of long-form documentaries, that helped make sense to, to, to Michael's partners. And also to the creative side, because there had been an attempt to make this as a one-hour doc or two-hour doc. And the feeling was it could never work. Because, never. And, and never. And by the way, if I'm Michael Jordan, I wouldn't do it either because he knew what was on that footage, maybe not to the extent, but it was going to be unflattering and without the proper context, it would maybe just come off looking like he's an asshole, you know? Uh, and so, um, was it I, unflattering to you? Because I, I feel like, I think in the wrong context, it could be. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. Without context. I think that's the biggest thing because nowadays it's so easy to get taken out of context and for you to have control over the creative process, the editing as an athlete with somebody's brand like Jordan, and you have to appreciate the brand equity that he's put into it. Like, I get the fact that you want final say on editing. I want that on my podcast. If somebody asks me to come on a podcast, like, I ask you to come on, you're a pro, but I generally tell people, if you say something that you really didn't like saying, and then they're a friend, they hit me up and I'll, I'll edit it out. Like, Michael Jordan deserves that. Um, and it's not like it's out of line. I know that, like, Ken Burns comments and all that, and there's people that are like, well, it's a documentary. What you're watching in sports, whether it's a football life or something else, it's generally guided by the subject of, uh, of the documentary. And what you see on people's social media is their highlight tape. That's how we look at athletes unless they get arrested or unless something gets leaked. Like, it's all fair. It is what it is. And you know what? I mean, it was, it was brilliant. So I don't care if I didn't see every Jordan low point that, you know, we don't see that about a lot of people, period. Well, I'll tell you this. Look, I was a reporter with the Wall Street Journal. I still kind of look at the world through that lens. Um, I think it's, it's, First of all, I think the criticism, to the extent that it exists, that oh, Jordan had final cut. Let me tell you something. He he was not saying take out that quote. He really, really wasn't. And and they are savvy enough to realize that if it's all sanitized, if it's all just a big congratulatory thing, it's not going to be good. Right. And that's not you know. Um, I think you know Jason has said it really well, which is like 
Michael came to play, you know, and, and I think that that comes shining through in the candor of the interviews. Mm -hmm. And it's not like we don't go there. I mean, name the issue, gambling, his father's Republicans don't, yeah, Republicans. You know, the shoe controversy, politics, and we go there. I mean, this is not a page one Wall Street Journal story in terms of an expose, but it is a, I think, very thorough and, you know, balanced to the extent that we needed to be in this kind of format. And and so there's not a 60 minutes piece. And by the way, if you want to do that, I think you're going to end up digging nowhere. I mean, yeah. I really do think that, but also yeah. then what do you have? You know? I, I think the only thing that was probably left out was his very personal life. And, and, you know, like, as far as like what he did when he went out, like who shows that, I mean, who, right. who does that? And then, uh, you know, probably just more shit talk, like just more iterations of the same shit talk. <laughs> right. Another, another opponent who, yeah. who, who snubbed him and then he dominated. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, you know, we all have personal sides as athletes that don't see the light of day. And, you know, I, I think it's unfair to hold Mike to that standard. We're not doing, um, you know, a World War II documentary here. It, it's, uh, I understand that some people, you know, I think it depends on the lens you look at it through, too. I think when he said, you're going to hate me, I thought, I don't think he was purposefully under-promising, over-delivering, but I also think that he was understanding that a lot of people, and this goes back to, well, that's because you never won nothing, that comment, a lot of people who are not athletes do not understand that that stuff is commonplace. The way he talked to Scott Burrell, the way he motivated himself, even the way he isolated himself, and like with the brand, okay, we're talking about the brand. Consider a world today where everything is documented, okay? Like LeBron has a production company, he has social media, Taco Tuesday, it just doesn't fucking stop, Okay. <laughs> Jordan's brand was guarded with such red tape for such a long time that I feel like almost ironically, him doing less is more, and this was mentioned by his team, paved the way for guys now to, to prescribe to the more is more brand strategy. I think that without Jordan denying people mm-hmm. access for so many years, we don't have the, you know, the reward for, for continual access that we have now for athletes. Well, there's not, there's not much mystery left. I mean, it, it, it's... It's good and bad. It's great for for people in in my world because there's an access, there's an there's a business model, there's a, a way to tell these stories that probably wasn't there before. Um, but it does take away a little bit of the mystery. Um, I mean, it's just also a different media age and a different set of expectations. You know, the reality is there weren't any athletes, certainly of Michael's stature, taking social you know justice position. Right. They didn't have that platform. By the way, we didn't ask that of John McEnroe. We didn't ask that of, you know, Howie Long. We didn't, we didn't ask, ask Stockton, Pippen. We didn't yeah. ask any of the guys in the in the in the documentary. And I thought that like, there's heavy as the head that wears a crown. I get that, and I've been involved in activism and political conversations and that and whatnot. And that's an ugly thing. And you're almost going to lose every time, no matter how you come out. And I understand that like in the '90s, if you're looking around, it's not the norm. Why are you expecting that he has to be the best basketball player of all time, and then a '90s trailblazer at the same time? I understood that the race in North Carolina, but the background around that, you know, there were some circumstances that, as he explained it, that made a little more sense. I think people only look at it through a 2020 lens. Well, and by the way, what, what is, why does everybody have to be a, uh, an activist? I you mean, don't have what to. may work for you or me or what my impulse is, isn't what, just because he's a big athlete, we didn't ask Magic to do that. And by the way, Magic got a lot of crap for that initially, if you remember, when he was quote, not doing enough for HIV, you know? Yeah. And so I think we sort of put these weight on guys, athletes, me because, 
musicians or, or, or actors have traditionally been more forthright in that way. But like, you know, it's okay to be sort of a gladiator, you know, yeah. and that's what you do. It I think so have to be a politician as well. And nowadays, um, you know, there's a number of our favorite players that don't open their mouth about stuff like that. And I'm pretty sure if they did, you'd be either disappointed, depending on what you believe, or you'd think they didn't do it well enough or they weren't well-versed enough. Where does Jordan have the time to immerse himself in things like social justice or politics unless he's doing it on a surface level? And from somebody, and, and I can tell you from somebody who's had to speak on things, it takes more than like diving in on a surface level. Or you're going to embarrass yourself, which is why like I pick my spots. Like, mm -hmm. so I, I get the Jordan thing with that. Is there something you were surprised to learn about working with him, like his personality of pet peeve. Did it take a while to get over the walking on eggshells part? Well, it's hard because, you know, it was always, I, you know, Jason did the interviews. I, what my, my um, POV on it is watching and watching the body language and, and the spaces between. Michael Jordan has really not done that much media and he's been, you know, most of it is, you know, just enough to get, the media, you know, sort of what they need, but not really, you know, forthright. I don't know if I was surprised at just the detail of like how he would invent these motivations, you know, like LeBradford Smith. Dude, the and, poor guy. And, uh, he had no idea he was on that thing. He's probably watching with his family like, oh, I love Jordan. Probably barely remembered that game. And right. then he's like, oh, shit. Well, that and, and I did not know the... I knew some of the origins of the Jerry Krause um, sort of relationship. I did not know that chapter from 86 where he was injured and, and, and Krause like was so dead set on not using him. You know, by the way, in hindsight, I, you know, nowadays all GMs would have, they would all shut down their stars. They would you'd be like, what are you, what are you crazy? You know, that, that, that you're going to come back for a team that's maybe going to get into the first round and get bounced immediately. You know, play for the lottery. Yeah. Um, some of those details, I didn't know some of the extent of the relationship with his brother and his dad and how, how you know, his, he was constantly competing for his dad's attention and affection. So that drove him. Um, so, you know, some of these nuggets that came through in the interviews, um, I think were, were, were maybe the most surprising. Yeah. You know what? And you mentioned that um, the Jordan psyche part of it, which was you know, kind of the main event, because everybody wants to get inside his head. And you mentioned the competitiveness. I heard, I don't know if it was you said this, somebody said he's the coolest guy in the room. I mean, yeah. that was something that was illuminating. <laughs> I mean, it's hard not to be cool when you're Michael Jordan. I feel like if you tell a joke, your teammates have to laugh, you know, that sort of thing. But I also did think, not in a, a traditional cool way that I, I, I was impressed by him, but I thought he was an old soul. I also thought he was, he was angry. I thought he was insecure. Um, and these are all very normal things for great athletes. And I think some of the childhood stuff, obviously what he'd been through, that's part of why I like the later years, because he had this coat of armor, this Teflon built up just these calluses emotionally, personally, that, that made it so raw. And he probably appreciated everything late, but he was on an island, I felt like. Did you get that very, sense going through all the old footage? Well, very much. One of my favorite pieces of footage is when his rookie year and we show him ironing the clothes. You know... I was talking about this the other day. I mean, it's all, you know, what you know. And so I, I, you know, say I grew up here in LA and maybe for life, my role model is, was magic. Right. And I, that's the energy that I still connect to, which is like this infectious charismatic personality. Not that Matt, Jordan isn't those things. 
but his energy, they're complete opposites. Magic was about propping people up, right. you know, and, and like the joy of winning. And I think for, for Michael, you know, at least it was a much more, it, it obviously equally, if not more effective, but his thing was just ruthless killer. I, yes. The way to win is to kill the soul of the other guy. And if these guys can't, can't hang with me, F them, you know, yeah. but I'm going there. Whereas magic, at least outwardly, and obviously magic is an intense competitor too, but that you're, you know, the, there's a different energy. Yeah, I mean, there's and different so, ways to lead. You know, and LeBron, interestingly, I think is more like magic that way. You know, he's much more about the lift up of others. And obviously he can be a killer too. And Kobe is more like MJ. Right. I just think with the leadership piece, everybody's enamored with, okay, I'm just going to go out as an athlete and be like Michael Jordan. Well, that can only happen if you're damn near perfect. So number one, if you want that leadership style and you're like a seven out of 10 player, people are going to get real tired of you. So I don't think Jordan was inappropriate for acting that way. I think that he knew what he possessed and he also had the, that, that fire in his belly to lead that way. Now, some guys, it's just not their personality. I think the number one rule of leadership is to be you. Because if you're not, athletes snip bullshit. As do people in the professional yeah. world. If you're, if you're not yourself, people don't respect you. So that's why they probably respect Magic and, and, and LeBron in their own, own ways. But I thought beyond the leadership, I did get a sense that, like, he, he had funny friends. Like, he gravitated, and this is part of the old soul thing, I feel like, to guys that you wouldn't expect – him to be tight with you'd expect to see him and scotty hanging out you'd expect to see players on the team other nba stars and he did but it was the security guys it was wozniak it was gus it was it was his best friend um by the way did he petition to get michael jordan's best friend <laughs> good question i don't know i i think he's just he he's earned it he's all right when you earn that fucking lower third and you're michael jordan's best friend that's pretty cool yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, also there's Buzz Peterson, you know, who was his, his freshman year or his college roommate. Um, yeah, I mean, I think also, again, there's sort of a change, you know. I mean, a lot of guys in the media would talk about this, like early Michael, young Michael would kibitz with the reporters and he would like to, you know, who's doing what around the league and and that changed. And I, I think there's clearly a line of demarcation between, you know, when his father passes away and and uh, and, and before. and also. So before they win a title, because, you know, he was not Michael Jordan yet. I don't care. Yes, he was a marketing star and he was obviously the best player in the league or, you know, most quote unquote, most talented player in the league, but um, not the most valuable, you know, yeah. uh, until he won the championship. And so um, I think that, you know, he, he as he became big, I mean, that is to me one of the most, you know, impactful parts of the project is like you see his world is so huge, but it's also so small. And it's like, you know, it's that that glare is, is closing in. And it's, I you know, I remember having this conversation in college and, and you know, 96, 97, 98. It's like, okay, if like the three most, if you went anywhere, the three most famous faces, right, you could show anywhere, be like, I don't know, Bill Clinton, the Pope, and Michael Jordan. Yeah. I yeah, mean, he made I mean, celebrities seem like total fanboys. You had a Leo, a Seinfeld. Oh, yes. These guys are looking like they're in lights that they've never seen. Almost like it's Michael Jordan, so they're not embarrassed. But if it was anybody else, they'd probably be like, fuck, I look pretty, I look like a fanboy there. <laughs> if you were an athlete today and your father passed and people, and this was another thing the journalists got, got, you know, they weren't spared either because there were a lot of anchors that looked very bad in retrospect. Some of these columns, you're a journalist. 
you know, that's just not the way you write stories. You don't connect dots in a really, like, first off, you don't speculate on something that serious. Well, unless but, you're the president. Yeah, unless you're the president. Exactly, exactly. But he's not a fucking journalist. I don't know what he is. Uh, he's barely, he's not a president. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just thought, like, if I was Michael Jordan and that happened to me, yeah, I would never want to speak to the press again. And actually, as I watched him, and I think today's, I think it's, it. I, I don't want to sound like an old man yelling at a cloud, but I'll do it. Like, I think today's stars are a little bit sensitive. I really do believe that. And I think that you look back at Michael and I'm watching him answer tough questions after losses and that sort of thing. And all things considered, I thought he was very good with the media after what they burnt him through in the mid nineties. Um, and I thought that was impressive, but also to your point, the character development, this isn't a TV show. There was a character development a la breaking bad, you know, it, it, in a different way, but you know, it's, he starts off as that kid who doesn't want to walk in the room because he doesn't know what's going on there in the hotel room to that's you know, the, the, the elder statesman that's just calloused and he's seen it all. And, you know, his motivations are different. He has to retire twice. Like the character development is amazing. And all you guys have to do is piece that together. Yeah. I mean, and it's, listen, it's, it's, uh, it's easier said than done. And like, you know, the editing on this is, is fantastic. Um, you know, for me personally, one of the most powerful moments uh, in, in the show. I mean, I, there's several that I love. Episode seven, um, you know, we hit all the hot button issues, the retirement, the gambling, the conspiracy theories, the father, um, and it ramps up at the end um, with this incredible ending, you know, Michael calls break. And you have to remember that moment in real time was 45 minutes into the first interview. Yeah. Which is unbelievable. And, yeah. you know, Jason has a great story about this and, and, and it's just like, you know, you don't know, does this mean like we're done or like, are we on a path to greatness? Does that, the seven end with the father's day win? Uh, no thought that that's, uh, that's eight. eight. Yes. Yeah, seven ends oh. with Michael calling break. And I got chills just thinking about any of those. I mean, like, uh, well, so, you know, by the way, I'll, I'll return to what I was saying in eight, like this is you, you asked about watching as a fan. I never saw the final, final, final audio mix and color correction on eight until I, until the show came. And, you know, I'd seen that footage of him heaving, you know, after they, you know, crying, but I hadn't heard it in the same way. And so when, you know, it was just like, I finally heard the crying and it was just like, whoa. And I, and it's just so great. And way seven, more human than just watching it with no sound and just exactly. Not and only I was, seen that footage before, but I've never heard score, it. The score was great. Like the, the selections, but the game six win, the shot over Brian Russell, the shot over Brian Russell. Uh, I think I, I looked it up. Zach Hemsey, the, the song is Vengeance. I mean, like the score was flawless. Yes. And, and, and with the Father's Day thing, it was the right balance to me as a viewer of bringing that to life on a human level. You've all seen the footage, but have you heard him heaving and wailing? on the ground and, and the audio from the music comes down just enough. And it was like, it was like you were walking a, a thin line between blending those together. And I think it just stuck beautifully. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, nine has the Kerr pod and we interviewed Steve Kerr in New York on the day of the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. It was raining in New York and it was a heavy day. And, and Jake Rogal, who was, you know, Jason sort of day to day producer of, just an incredible guy, is from Pittsburgh. And he, you know, he grew up going to bar mitzvahs at that synagogue. 
And Steve Carino is such an intelligent, insightful. I mean, when he runs for office, I want to make the film about yeah. it. Um, but that interview, Jason did you know, just a marvelous job. And, and the whole time I, I'm in the, you know, in the back of a hotel room listening with headphones and I'm looking at Mike Tolan. This is unbelievable. And he went there about the fathers and, you know, the parallels, you know, that these, both these guys, very different guys, different paths to greatness or to the pros that having their fathers murdered, you know, how powerful that is. And so then when you see it in nine, that Kerr hits the shot and then he gets the, 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 the sort of the approval from Jordan. He had, he had earned his stripes and it's just, it's just so powerful. And I, and I, I was crying in the interview <laughs> when we shot it. And when, you know, I had seen it in various forms in, in the edit, I knew it was going to really land. No, I, the, the Kerr thing, I thought there were so many great sequences, just like Michael's moments there's such an abundance that some of these moments get buried by the other ones because they're all so great. I mean, like Michael hit shots that for everybody else, that would be the pantheon <laughs> their existence as athletes, but they're buried. Um, and there were so many moments and sequences. So I want to let, I want to hit the sequences before we get out. And that like the, that, that naturally lends itself to talking about the people, but the Steve Kerr thing, uh, you know, I don't think a lot of people know that story in detail. I don't know if it's the fact that he hadn't talked about it at length in a in a public setting. You know, everybody knew the Michael thing, but for somebody like me who knows it happened but didn't know the details, as soon as they said, and there was that thing they had in common, I turned to my wife, and my wife's never heard the story. And so you had the effect of illuminating that for a lot of people, the sadness, the happiness of him hitting the shot, all rolled into one, and then educating some people. I, be, I think a, a broad part of the population didn't even know the story. Well, yeah, and the thing that's so, you know, again, unique, surreal about the project is that even if this had been, this project was never going to be ignored. It was Michael Jordan. So had we, you know, released it when it was going to be released in June, maybe it was the Lakers against the Bucks or whatever in the finals, and it wouldn't got, it would have gotten promoted. But you wouldn't, people just wouldn't have had the chance to consume it in the same way. And by the way, the, the episodes would have been over in June. Sports Center would not be talking about the episodes. They would have been talking about the NBA finals. Right. And so, so you have that, and it probably would have been a big deal here, but you know, maybe not the rest of the world. Now everyone's going through this. So you know, I've got you know family and friends and Chile and Argentina and Israel and England and Canada. My my a dear friend of mine from college from Canada sends me a a, a screenshot number one in Canada today. It's just like yeah, you know, totally surreal. And I think that's the part. Obviously, we could never have predicted. Um, but I think it's a real credit. I mean, first and foremost, a massive credit to Jason and this yeah. unbelievable group of editors who did this all remotely. I mean, we had to copy the project five times. And then, you know, I give a lot of credit to ESPN. You know, A, hey, let's, let's figure out what's the best way to release this. And, you know, I think the two a week kind of is the best way. I mean, I, I almost, we could have done 10 weeks in I one agree. episode. Maybe that would have been too long, you know? This um, was but, unique. It was good because you can binge it and you can binge it, but but you're still teased with the next week. Correct. And that's, by the way, one of the things, a, a, a hidden, just massive thing about the show, the, the ramp up at the ends to give you these cliffhangers on every episode where you're just like, Whoo! you know, yeah. I can't wait to see the next one. I got that as a, you know, member of the production team. Yeah. And, I, you know, it's just a little story. When that episode seven, we were editing it, uh, it was like early February, late January, early February. And there's a moment when Michael retires 
when I think Andrea Kramer, whose interview we shot at my one of my best friends from college's house. Oh, really? <laughs> he, he, he and his wife were very happy that it got a lot of play. That's um, awesome. But um, uh, that that edit was coming around, and and Andrea says, you know, the the day Michael Jordan retired in 1993 was was a day, you know, you it was just one of those days you knew where you were. And I'm watching this edit while my son's doing a baseball practice on a Sunday morning in the Valley. <laughs> and I'm watching it on my phone. And this is maybe four or five days after Kobe died. And it was like, wait, that's a memory where you know exactly where you are. And, and like just these strange things. And I wrote, I remember texting Jason and Jake being like, isn't it just so surreal? And, and, and it was like, they're like, yeah, we had the same thought. Like it almost feels perverse to kind of say that like well, everybody in our age or in the world was thinking about Kobe. And it's just like, that's the sort of behind the scenes stuff that goes on when you make these things, you just don't. Well, it's David Stern, it's Kobe. It's obviously most notably Kobe, but these are two very central figures in this entire narrative with the NBA and, and, uh, not only ascending to the most popular, you know, point in the sports growth internationally and, and in America, but also coming out of it. And Kobe is the, the he was the heir apparent. So I think for you as an LA fan, I, I, and somebody who worked on it heavily, and you're seeing the footage for the first time at different points in the in the editing process. Was it hard to see? Uh, when was that shot? You know, I was thinking about this. I got to look. Kobe, we shot in 2019. I mean, it was not the last, last, last interview we did was John Stockton. And it's a funny story. Jason could not go because we couldn't, he couldn't run the risk of, you know, my, you know, at the time coronavirus, the, the epicenter was in Washington. Yeah. So they called me and they said, would you be willing to go and do the interview? And I was like, Oh my God, I'd love to. John Stockton. Then I, then I, then I talked to my wife. Yeah. <laughs> she said, wait a minute, you're going to go into the epicenter of the coronavirus today, March yeah. 14th. So that didn't happen. We ended up saying a great producer, who, who, you know, we know from Seattle who did the interview. Uh, but that's how late into the weeds we were on this project. I'm just trying to think. David Stern was relatively early. I think that was in 2018. Yeah. 2019 at some point, maybe in the summer with Kobe. Um, but, uh, you know, it's very poignant for me. I, mean, I had the opportunity to interview uh, both guys uh, in my career. Um, David Stern on, on, you know, three or four occasions. and. You know, I, I I sort of nicknamed him the rabbi. I mean, he, he's just sort of like, yeah. he's like my sports rabbi. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, the fact that we are, you know, probably two, two of the final interviews they have ever done, certainly, you know, the most high profile project, very poignant. And it's like, look, this is a project that has super, super deep NBA roots. I mean, this is a project for the guys, Andy Thompson and, and you know, who's Michael Thompson's brother and the uncle of Clay Thompson. Yeah. It doesn't happen without them. Right. Like Greg Winnick who was the executive producer of NBA Entertainment. His two brothers were basically the main two cinematographers. His son, Max, was on our production staff. So it's a lot of people and, a, and an incredible team. And it's just like timing, opportunity, destiny, whatever, it, yeah. it all came together. And so just very grateful to be a part of it. And the Kobe thing, um, you know, I'd never seen an interview where he quite struck that tenor to me at that stage in his life. He sounded like a kid. I mean, Kobe is this killer. You know, he is the Black Mamba. He's the guy that even when he's having fun talking about something, there's this thin veil of, okay, I'm smiling, but under this, I'm an absolute fucking axe murderer. <laughs> and in that scene, that guard was completely down. I felt like the veil was much thicker because 
he's talking about somebody that truly embraced him. And the, the interesting thing with Jordan was you, you talked about that all-star game, which was a really cool, I mean, you got Rick Smith's making an appearance in the picture, the, the Dutchman, but like Kobe is, um, Kobe is on the surface probably getting ostracized by the guys because he's the new dog and, you know, and he's, he's the guy that everybody's worried about and they're threatened and they're talking shit about him in the locker room. But then, Great. but then he <laughs> says, Jordan pulled me aside and offered to help me if there's ever anything I need help with. So there was that duality with not only Jordan, but Kobe in that situation. I'd never seen him like that. Well, I, you know, you never know what's the private lives and, and, you know, some guys, they seem more friendly on the outside than maybe they really are. And I thought Michael's speech at Kobe's memorial was, was very powerful. And, um, and I, you know, Kobe had this reputation that he would text guys. And, and, and I, I know that, you know, he, um, he would have this, you know, relationship that I, and I think that as, as Kobe's career went on, he got that from Michael that like, you got to pay it forward. And, and not with everyone, but, you know, with, with the people who, who are willing to seek it and who can take it. Um, and it's just, it just is very sad. It makes yeah. me sad as, as a, you know, someone who, you know, I, as a Laker fanatic, I loved Kobe. Never connected with his energy the same way I did with Magic, but I had enormous respect for his just unbelievably intelligent guy and like wanted the rock and wanted the responsibility. And that was the part about him that was just like so inspiring. And it, you know, it was very, that, that part of it, I think hit, hit me in this project as you see, you know, when it comes to Michael, it's a whole different ballgame. When it came to Kobe, uh, I, I met him twice. I'm lucky enough to say that. I, he's a, a Philly guy, so he's a big Eagles fan. So one of the coolest things was that he was really behind us on that Super Bowl run. He came and talked to our team, and he didn't just talk for 10 minutes. He answered questions for an hour. I, I got to ask him a couple questions, and he was very gracious, took pictures with everybody. And then also I met him at the ESPYs again, uh, and I was walking by him, and we made eye contact, and it's that eye contact where it's like, Okay, if he knows who I am, I'm not going to walk by him because that, like, I, I have to say hi. And I stuck out my hand. It's Kobe. What's up? It's Chris Longman. Good to see you again. And he's like, I know exactly who you are, bro. And he laughed at me. And that was one of the coolest things <laughs> I ever heard. That's the greatest thing ever. I know Kobe knows who I am. He watched that entire run. He remembers me. That's fucking cool. Let's hit a couple of supporting actors before I get you out of here, so to speak. Reggie Miller. Mutual respect is what I took away. I mean, like, this is a guy that Jordan... No supporting actor survived this unscathed. Not even like <laughs> Charles Barkley. He took swipe to, swipes at everybody. But with Reggie, it felt like he didn't fear Jordan, so Jordan respected him. Absolutely. Um, I think there's probably – well, there's definitely mutual respect. I think they did not like each other. And I think that um, it's a combination of – I don't know what have, may have gone on beyond you know the, the floor, but um, I think what you just said hit it. and. Reggie, you, I mean, you know, Reggie Miller, he ain't afraid of anyone. No. And like he, he, I think it was insulting to him that Michael, he should be def deferential. By the way, the, one of the best lines in the series was from John Stockton. He's like, we didn't, you know, we're there to win, man. Mm -hmm. Like we want to yeah. win. And he was we very respectful about it, but that's the competitive nature of pro athletes. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, part was you know real um and and real he was also he was one of the last interviews we did reggie it was it was he was one of the more challenging ones to schedule and i think because you know michael ruined it i mean he, he tormented him and so i think yeah. that that is real 
Gary Payton. Okay, so Gary Payton to me was the one, if I had one critique of the entire thing, and I'm interested to hear this. I thought Gary got walked into a hornet's nest. <laughs> okay, did because I think it was a bit unfair because I thought he did a decent job on, on Mike at the end of the series. I think there's some validity to what he's saying, but he has no idea that, that Jordan's going to have the iPad, does he? No, 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 no. That was the, the interview we did with Gary, I want to say was Charlotte, was the All-Star weekend in 2019. And yeah. then that last iPad moment, which is such a great, you know, just so, so fantastic. Yeah. Um, he, I don't think he was walked into the hornet's nest, but I think our, the production put him there because yeah. he gave Michael the last word. And, you know, I agree with you. I remember watching that series and sort of like, oh, my God. I mean, you know, the Sonics are a good team. This kind of goes to my larger thing about the Bulls, which is I don't think with the, you know, the, the, the Jazz were a formidable foe, no question. But like nobody would say any of the teams they beat in the finals, whether it's the Blazers, the Jazz, the Suns, the Sonics, all good teams, no doubt. None of them historic teams. But think about who the Spurs beat in the finals, by the way. Obviously, Detroit was very good. They beat Detroit in seven, but it was the Nets. It was a few other teams. that did, The Knicks. I'm a Knicks fan. That team was terrible. We've had better Knicks teams. Right. No, and I think – but, you know, I remember watching that Sonic series, the game three. I remember watching. I was like, oh, my God, they're going to sweep them. And then I remember watching game five. I didn't even see game four. And it was like game five. I was like, they might – they got a shot. Like, they, they, might, they might be able to take this to seven. And, and then, of course, they get vanquished in game six. But, yeah, I mean, listen, Gary Payton was incredible. A great player. Um, yeah. But just, you know, okay, they had Sean Kemp. Uh, or yeah, Sean Camp, but like okay, Frank Burkowski. <laughs> we yeah, love Frank. Frank Burkowski. You know, uh, and Sam Perkins. You know, they had Big Smooth. I mean, they had a good team. It was more about to me, like even the Barkley Suns, the teams they beat to get there. So I think we differ a little bit on that. But I, as the point stands, they weren't necessarily like the world beater teams. They weren't the eighties. They weren't the Celtics, yeah. and they weren't the Pistons. So and okay, so so Horace Grant, he came out as a, as a snitch to you, or. No, I mean, I think that's not true. I mean, I think that, by the way, um, on the evidence, who is the one member of all of these teams who's written books? Bill Jackson. Oh, Phil. Yeah, oh, Phil. I, like, I was thinking Bill player. Jackson. Could it possibly have been that Sam Smith had some coaching sources? I mean, so. Phil, Phil worked the phones and worked the personal relationships and connections. So no doubt about it. That's interesting that you mentioned that. I mean. There was there was a whole it was a polarizing reaction to uh, to Horace. Wait, okay. Phil wrote a book as a player. He wrote yeah. Maverick as a player with the Knicks. So this was, you know, I, I, the answer is I don't know who was yeah. Sam Smith's deep throat, but like uh, I I think hey, it might have been Horace, but uh, there were other guys. How about Rodman? You think he gets a pass today if he plays? Do you think everybody would be online caping for him? Like, come on, it's just practice. Like, let guys live their life. I don't think you could be that way i mean he's like it's such a moment in time i mean remember like you know forget about athletes for a second like i mean musicians and like you know military people had tattoos but like this was not a mainstream thing to have a lot of tattoos or a lot of you know the earrings and the nose rings and yeah everything. not in the 90s especially not tattoos that bad <laughs> and and so you know, I think he learned a lot from Madonna that way. Give me, uh, give me real quick. Uh, I got two guys and three, three quick hitters for you. Isaiah Thomas. Uh, how hard was it to get him to not only show up and talk, but you know, to 
to open up and trust that you guys weren't going to create this big thing with him and Mike. He gave us a lot of time. I mean, I think, you know, that was another just outstanding job by Jason in a, in a film, you know, full, chock full of them. Um, not hard. I mean, I, in terms of, uh, he was one, he was, you know, not like our final interview. You know, Isaiah's for all of his, you know, uh, flaws and, and for whatever, you know, he's also a pretty inspiring character on the face of it. I mean, you know, where he came from, all, all the success. So, um, you know, I, I would say that was not one of the harder ones in terms of, of booking. Was Scotty taken out of context when he said that, um, that he would, he would do it over again. I know a lot of people say like when he checked himself out of the game, you know, he, he, he was the most interesting to me because you went through these, these periods of sympathy to like, what the hell are you doing, Scotty? To like, you know, do you have the worst luck in NBA history to, oh, he got paid on the back end, so it all kind of evens out and he got six, six championships. How am I going to feel bad for this fucking guy? But that one statement was one that stuck with a lot of people and people were scratching their heads. What did he mean by that through your eyes? You, you mean that he would have done it again and sat down? Yeah. I didn't take it that way. I mean, I... It's funny. I think he he understood the gravity of what he did, you know, and the Bill Cartwright of it all after that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think he was he was a he was hurt, you know, and I think he I think my reading of that is in the mindset he was in at the time, not knowing that he would, you know, he would have done it again. And like he felt disrespected, you know, at this critical time. I mean, I don't know, you know, would he do it again? And knowing that he had that would have to live that down i don't know i think he's just you know we've all said it before we even do our mistakes over but it's just the way it came out it, it, it caused a lot of people to be unsympathetic do three quick hitters i really appreciate you taking the time man um okay number one three people from the do documentary not named jordan these are players that you'd have to quarantine with steve kerr well if there could be anyone i'd say steve kerr magic and uh um tony kukoc Kukoc, love Kukoc, love really, Kukoc. yeah. Plus, you feel I mean, safe. I'm, I'm listen. I'm I'm biased. I I love you know international basketball. I did a film on the Lithuanian Olympic team yeah. that got scored by the Grateful Dead. Uh, I mean, there's a lot. Uh, Horace Grant's super cool. I <laughs> there's a lot of yeah. them. Uh, Gary Payton. I mean, it'd be great. Give me Ron Harper, man. Ron, uh, Ron Harper, Harper like Ron that, Harper's that was the final so much. Yeah, Ron Harper's great. You know and. and by the way, another great story. Ron Harper, you know, had a terrible stutter and like, you know, had played with the Cavs and the Clippers. I, he's got one of the best, like, just dissing on like, Craig Elo? You put Craig Elo on him? Us players have all been through something like that. It just really, it really hit home. Okay, so you had, uh, you had Kukoc, Magic, and Kerr. That's great. Um, what is, uh, you know, this is unprecedented. There's, there's people talking about, and we've talked about this. What's the next last dance? There's no last dance, you know, comp out there from opportunity, but a, a team or a player that you think would actually work to be adapted. And this is fantasy world. You could have Babe Ruth footage if you snapped your fingers. Oh, I'd probably say, well, by, uh, L.A. bias, I would say the Shaq, Kobe, Phil, Lakers. The, the Pat, the Patriots reign, um, you know, from 01 till you know now um and even though belichick wouldn't be boring <laughs> i don't know no, I, that, that's a, well, I would love but, to but see if you belichick. peel back if you peel back the curtain it's not boring. Yeah, to, to a degree yeah. okay so, so I did, shaq kobe lakers you know brady belichick Kraft, you know patriots and 
just think about this. I mean, I'm a soccer fan. It would be super cool to be like, you know, like Barcelona, you know, behind oh, yeah. the scenes Barcelona with Messi and Xavi and Iniesta and, and Pep Guardiola, Guardiola as the coach. I mean, um, th- those, maybe those three dynasties. Okay, so I, I got this from Reddit. I have to admit, I, I poached this guy's great question, but do you like the Beatles? Oh, yeah. Okay, I'm not as big a fan of the Beatles, admittedly. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm a big fan of the Quiet Beetle, okay? So he's my favorite. Um, George Harrison? Harrison's my favorite. His solo stuff, I think, is even better. I mean, but that's for another long argument or discussion. If the Bulls are the Beatles, who is who? Okay, if the Bulls are the Beatles, you got to say, I guess, you know, Jordan is John Lennon. Pippin is, uh, is, is Paul. Um, Ringo is, I guess, Rodman. Yeah. And George Harrison is cursed John Paxson. Valuable when it counts. You're giving me a while my guitar gently weeps moment every couple years. And then, you know, and, and part of the team. And super yeah. interesting. Afterwards. I think the dude on Reddit made a good case for Scotty being George because, you know, he wanted to spread his wings, do his own thing. You know, he was always underappreciated. So, so I get Paul? that. Huh? So who's Paul? Who's Paul? Ugh, I don't know, but I know I know who Yoko is. <laughs> and and Phil is George Martin. Yeah. Um, so um, yeah. So and Jerry. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yoko and Phil. Uh, and yeah. 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 Exactly. So ma- yeah. So I mean, like, listen. Thank you so much for the time. Um, this has been amazing. Uh, what you guys just pulled off. I. I you know, I hate to make this an emotional thing because it's just sports, but it's not just fucking sports. And you guys were able to lift an entire population spirits in a really tough time. And you did that under a time crunch. It had to feel good to, 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 to press play when it was all over. So I'm just interested to see what the next uh, project is. Uh, well, the next one, uh, I guess I can, yeah, is, is we're doing a multi-part documentary series for Showtime on the Comedy Store. Very different kind of subject matter, but, um, you know, the iconic comedy club. And this is, you know, the place for comedians from Leno, Letterman till now, you know, Whitney Cummings and Bill Burr and uh, Crystalia. So we're doing essentially like a 30 for 30 series. We're going to have about six, seven films coming out in the next year. Uh, Olympic stories, called, a series called Five Rings Films. And you know, we've got one coming out on the American wrestler, Rulon Gardner. I'm directing one that uh, on, a, on a basketball topic uh, that you'll hear about. Um, and so we got some fun stuff in the hopper. Awesome. Well, I can't wait. Well, I really appreciate it. That was really yeah, no, this, this has been great and very gracious with your time. John Weinbach, thank you so much. And um, keep kicking ass, man. And keep keep keeping us entertained. Can you hurry up with some of these documentaries? <laughs> Thanks so much. Say hi to your dad. I appreciate it. I sure it. will, great. man. I sure will. Take it easy, bro. So that was a lot of fun. It was obviously very informative. And number one, great conversationalist. Uh, there's some pods you just, they're not hard to do. I mean, like, they're just not, they're not difficult. And for somebody who could take himself pretty seriously right now, he was great to talk to and really nice of him to join the pod. Really interesting to, to hear the, the behind the scenes stuff, obviously, but through the lens that he worked on this for years and uh, hadn't seen it in a finished product type of way until we all saw it. So I'm imagining these guys like being almost bored with it. Like a musician probably doesn't want to listen to their music or like a podcaster does not want to hear their voice. But it sounded like a lot of these guys were able to see it kind of in its entirety and uh, got a little taste of what we got, which was, um, this was something new. This was something 
amazing and something that we hadn't seen anything like it before. So shout out to those guys. They really did. They did a, a great service. It wasn't just TV. It was, it was more than that for sports fans. I hate closing the book on this thing. I do think at some point we'll go to the well on this, uh, you know, what athlete or, or professional sports team could you see actually being interesting and enthralling enough to do a last dance kind of thing on. Uh, I think we'll do that at some point. I think we might do it sooner rather than later, but uh, for today, that's enough. Last dance. John was awesome. Uh, hope you enjoyed. And we'll be, we'll be back Friday again. Thank you for the 1 million downloads. You guys are the best and uh, we'll see you Friday.